This is Oddballers, and I'm your host, Elizabeth Wires, and I am in search of the odd and bizarre. So join me as I embark on this journey onto the B-side of life to find the oddities in the world. From witch hunts to trending skincare routines, schizophrenic writers and blood-sucking demons turned sexy pop culture icons. This is Oddballers. The body looked to be jostled during the burial, and buried five feet below the surface of the earth, it was even a miracle that it survived as long as it did. The body was missing its hands, and the head and shoulders seemed to be scrunched together quite tight in the old wooden coffin long before the heavy weight of the dirt collapsed above it. The skeleton looked to be like it was screaming in terror, as if it knew it was being buried, or perhaps it was buried alive. It looked to be as if it perhaps was a character pulled straight from Edgar Allan Poe's stories. The bones were discovered in 2013, and they were said to have belonged to a man who had come to the New World seeking a fresh start a life of peace from the old world wars and religious persecutions. But it seemed to be more of just the same haunting life and a grisly, bitter end. That's how it went in this new world. That's how it went in this colony. The colony was known as Jamestown, and the discovery of these bones that were found here was definitely not a surprise to the archaeologists, because 19 years earlier, in 1994, an archaeologist by the name of William Kelso began excavations at historic Jamestown on Jamestown Island in Virginia. Just two years later, they found the 1607 settlement of James Fort, also known as Jamestown, which was thought to be lost to the river. The project was called Jamestown Rediscovery, and it brought such a wealth of knowledge to the archaeologists about what had happened at this settlement. The project that was only supposed to last 10 years was extended indefinitely in the hopes that they could continue finding things from the settlement and answering the long-lost mysteries of this time. But Jamestown was one of the first American colonies, and yet it's still only briefly in mentioned in school. American history glosses over this as just another colony on the road to Plymouth. And I imagine it's because it's full of betrayal and loss, religious turmoil, politics, death, and so many other grisly mysteries and things that we probably just would like to forget about, or paint over 
much like Christopher Columbus. But like the other colony in America, the one that was only a few miles to the south of Jamestown some 17 years earlier, Roanoke is a colony we are still reveling in. The mystery of what happened to them after they just vanished is something that has held historians and people alike on their toes for centuries. What happened to Roanoke? And did the Jamestown settlers heed this warning of Roanoke's legacy that it left behind? Or are they also going to be doomed to a grisly and grim fate? My name is Elizabeth Wires, and this is Oddballers. After Christopher Columbus's voyage in 1492, Spain dominated the race to establish colonies in America, or I should say the Americas. And the English, on the other hand, they were met with an epic failure after Roanoke. But in 1606, three years after Queen Elizabeth's death, King James I granted a charter to a new adventure called the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company was the English name for the eastern coast, and it was named after Queen Elizabeth, known as, of course, the Virgin Queen. This company planned to search for gold and silver in the New World and help establish new trade routes once again with Asia, places like China and India. They wanted to find easier trade routes there. So this new venture was to set up a colony and see if there were easier trade routes and also search for new materials while they were there. Now, let's refresh your mind with some English history quick. In case you have not listened to some prior episodes, I will give you a quick crash course here. Okay, so Queen Elizabeth I was the daughter of Anne Boleyn and King Henry VIII, and she came into power after her half-sister Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and also the granddaughter of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, died. A very gruesome death of basically loneliness or dysentery. They're not really sure. But after the death of her half-sister, Elizabeth took to the throne, created England as a Protestant nation, and ruled for quite some time, until Elizabeth's death in 1603. Now, Elizabeth had no heirs of her own. She had no children. She was said to be the virgin queen, so she never married, never had kids, I mean, I'm sure she had many, many, many lovers because, I mean, let's face it, I highly doubt somebody of her stature was just celibate all her life, but perhaps. Anyways, having no heirs of her own and no children, it was said that her cousin, Queen Mary of Scots, would then succeed Elizabeth if something were to happen to her. However, some years before Queen Elizabeth's death, Queen Mary of Scots, or Scotland, um, was actually executed for treason. So, Mary was not going to then inherit the throne because, well, she was dead. But her son, on the other hand, James, um, actually succeeded Mary in Scotland. And so when Queen Elizabeth died, James became the heir to the English throne, therefore uniting 
all three nations of England, Ireland, and Scotland for the first time. So King James was a very, very busy boy. He was incredibly busy. He ruled Scotland for quite some time. And then after Queen Elizabeth's death, when he started ruling England and Ireland, he became even busier. From being directly involved in Scotland's witch hunts to commissioning his book, Demonology, and also a translation of the Holy Bible, this venture of the Virginia Company was just another tack that he was ready to put on his resume. So he was super, super busy ruling the Protestant nations of Scotland, Ireland, and England all together, succeeding Queen Elizabeth. So that's kind of where we're at with English history. So that is what's happening. Also, you can tell that James had a very high influence on these colonists because it is named Jamestown. And you can also tell that Queen Elizabeth was very beloved by her people because they were still naming things after her. Even after her death, they were keeping those names. Virginia, right, in honor of the Virgin Queen, Queen Elizabeth. So the Virginia Company um, was granted a charter to go on a mission. And in May of 1607, a group of 100 members of this Virginia Company founded a colony on the outer banks of the James River. And of course, they named it that after King James. Now, on the way to this new world, they had established some sort of governing council, which included Christopher Newport, which was the commander of the sea voyage, and also Captain John Smith. Now, yes, you've probably heard this name before. He was a former mercenary and was actually accused of insubordination, which is basically refusing to obey commands. So, John Smith, we're off to a great start, I will say. A great start already being insubordinate and I'm sure that we'll hear some great stories about you coming up. Now known by various names such as James Fort or James Town, James City, um, the settlement initially consisted of just this large wooden fort built in the triangle around storehouses that had weapons and some food, along with a church and many houses. By the summer of 1607, so they had only really been there a few months at this time, Newport had to go back to England, and he needed to return with more supplies. But when he came back, he not only had more supplies, he had more colonists. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I think that if you're running out of food with 100 colonists and then you bring the same amount of food back along with many, many more colonists, you're still going to run out of food. But again, I'm not Newport, nor am I a mathematician, nor was I here. So I can't really say. Now, during that time when he left, the settlers that were left behind were not really left in a great way. And it did take three months for them to get to England and back. So this is at least a six-month time span in which the settlers are just left by themselves. And they, did, they suffered greatly from, you know, severe hunger and 
dreadful illnesses like typhoid and dysentery, which was caused from drinking contaminated water from nearby swamps, which like, note to self, if left in a 17th century colony, don't drink swamp water. It's probably a good thing to know. They also lived in this constant fear of the threats from the local Native American tribes, most which would, were under the power of, I'm going to butcher this name and I apologize, Chief Powhatan. Now, I will say that there are some Native American names. I have tried to research how to correctly say them, but I am not great at pronouncing names in general. So, I'm going to apologize in advance that I'm probably going to severely butcher all of these names because I'm just, I'm just terrible at names in general. So, I apologize if this offends anyone. I have severely tried to research and try to figure out names to be respectful, but it's not great. I actually pronounced dysentery wrong for the longest time, so... It's not just names, it's just words in general. So, I'm sorry. John Smith was then thought to be the rescuer in this predicament that they had. The fear of the Native Americans. So, he went and quote-unquote rescued the colonists by speaking with Powhatan. And they reached a sort of understanding. And this led to settlers establishing a trade route with the tribe. And though things were still incredibly tense and some smaller feuds broke out here and there, they had a trading route. They had an understanding. And I wouldn't necessarily call this, quote, understanding like a peace treaty per se, but it's definitely, I don't think it's written down, but it was more of a mutual understanding of you have things that I need. I have things that you need. Let's kind of work together, be allies until the time is right where we don't need to be allies anymore. So they traded some stuff. So the Native Americans traded corn for things like beads and metal tools, other objects, including weapons. And the English definitely depended on this trade for sustenance. They got their food mostly from these Native Americans for the early years of the colony. Now, eventually, John Smith had to return to England in 1609. And during this time, the colonists of Jamestown suffered. Without John Smith really being there, there was not a whole lot of facilitating this quote-unquote understanding, and their demands for food became a little strenuous. And so they suffered through this long, harsh winter, and historians now call this, quote, the starving times. And during this time, more than a hundred colonists lost their lives, and that was over half of their population at the time. And you do have to keep in mind that the Native Americans are probably struggling a little bit too in the winter. I think winter is a time when everybody struggled. So they're probably not showing up as much for these colonists because they're trying to take care of themselves and their family. So you do have to kind of understand that even though they do have an understanding, the majority of this trade 
um, would have taken place in the spring, the summer, the fall. They're not going to be marching across frozen tundras to trade in the winter. So whatever they have before that first snow is kind of what they are stuck with until the weather turns around again. So during this time, they probably ran out of food because they probably didn't know how to ration very well. They probably just didn't have a lot to begin with. And a lot of them starved and died. And there are many firsthand accounts that describe the level of desperation that these colonists and these people felt. I mean, they were truly starving. And people do a lot of things when they're hungry. You know, people say nowadays, well, you're just hangry, right? You get crabby and you get hungry. But that seems like a very first world problem. Whereas this was the level of desperation of you are going to go as far to eat the leather off of your shoe and eat your pet, which they definitely did both of those. They would eat their pets, they would eat shoe leather, they would eat just random things that you wouldn't think about eating. And a lot of their clothes, um, again, like leather, was made from like parts of animals so it technically would be edible but only in a very desperate severe case and you know some of them even resorted to the unthinkable which was cannibalism now I'm gonna go on a quick tangent about cannibalism I do not condone it first of all duh that's just right out there I will say that it fascinates me because it's such a strange topic and it's such a strange idea and I feel like it's really brought up in a lot of different ways. If you've seen the show The Hundred, they have a little bit of cannibalism in that, which is just weird to me because it could have been avoided. They also have a little bit in like The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, again with witches. If you've listened to my witch episode from October, you'll know that a lot of people thought that witches were cannibals. So this was a really drastic thing for them to be doing because they're A, starving, but also as religious people, you know, this was the thing that right across the pond, people were getting burned for this because, you know, cannibals are witches. Even though I don't think cannibalism was actually taking place over there, that's what they thought. So this was not only a very severe way to quench their hunger, but also just a really taboo thing to even talk about. And now they're over here in Jamestown doing this. And there are also a lot of myths. A couple myths include um, Wendigos being present. If you're not sure what a Wendigo is, definitely look it up. I don't even think we have enough time in this episode to even get down to what it is, but it's basically this cannibalistic wild creature that's like half deer half human and like roams the woods eating people's flesh they're really fascinating creatures and if you want to hear an episode about wendigos let me know because i think i would be into doing an episode on those anyways i'm not sure whether or not the people of jamestown were just you know donner partying it where they would eat their dead or if they were going out and killing people to then eat um, I think either one of those is bad but I think one is definitely worse I think 
one is an act of desperation and one is an act of like severe desperation like if no one's dying who are you gonna eat type of deal regardless this was just a horrible time the starving times led to so many people's deaths and I'm sure that they were scarred for life knowing that they had to eat their pet or their neighbor now one of the colonist leaders uh, George Percy he was the leader at the time when John Smith went back to England for that short while he wrote down quote and now famine beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face that nothing was spared to maintain life and do those things which seemed incredible as to dig up dead corpse out of a grave and to eat them some have licked the blood which hath fallen from their weak fellows so again it does say they're digging up corpses and eating them which would mean they're already eating their dead but then it says some have licked up the blood of you know which hath fallen from their weak fellows so it's like are they eating the weak i'll let you decide that regardless this was a really traumatic time and by the spring the colonists who did not die or were not eaten were set to abandon jamestown they were like we're out of here we're done we don't want to be here anymore it's horrible we're gonna leave but that's when two ships arrived with 150 new settlers and of course more supplies so they were probably very happy to see the more supplies and the food but they probably were not too enthusiastic about seeing those new 150 settlers at least it was spring so they did have quite a long time until winter but it would approach quickly and they were probably pretty fearful that the same thing would happen over the winter the next year this ship also brought a new governor to the colony uh lord de la war which i guess with a name like that you would expect great things and terrifying things however he took ill very quickly and was quickly replaced by sir thomas gates i actually couldn't really find a whole lot about lord de la war but i think that that's because he was sick like almost instantly on arrival so sir thomas gates was the next governor of this colony and over the next year the colonists began to have this understanding again with the native american tribes nearby and began to expand their settlement by the fall of 1611 they had actually managed to grow their own crops of corn and things started to look up and they had a point of relief and relative peace in 1614 after a brief uprising which we'll get to in a moment um, with the marriage of john rolfe to chief powhatan's daughter pocahontas yes the same pocahontas in the disney movie however this is not a love story nor a musical where they run into the woods singing colors of the wind the true story behind pocahontas has actually been buried in myths that have persisted since the 17th century and right off the bat her real name is not even pocahontas okay she was born in like 1596 putting her age at this time around 11 or 12 her real name um was i'm going to butcher this again i'm really sorry Amante, and her more private name was Matatoka. 
and Pocahontas was actually her nickname, which meant either playful one or ill-behaved child, depending on who you ask. She was said to be the favorite daughter of Chief Powhatan, and it's also said from some of John Smith's writings that she was a beautiful daughter of this native leader who actually rescued him, an English adventurer, from being executed by her father. And though the facts are indeed debated, historians now think that this was a scripted endeavor. And we'll get to that again in a minute. Eventually, we see that Jamestown colonists are demanding too much from the tribe, food-wise, and there was some kind of plot, perhaps, to kill them. There is a thought that Pocahontas, who had been visiting these colonies during trades, came through the woods to warn them. And now, this narrative that Pocahontas then turned her back on her people to ally with the English is a tale that has been endured for centuries. Um, But things played a little bit differently about, you know, differently than how either John Smith or now culture tells it. It's actually pretty disputed on whether or not Pocahontas even rescued John Smith, as Smith might have misinterpreted this, and it was actually some sort of ritual ceremony or even just lifted the tail from some popular Scottish ballad. So there's a lot of things that don't quite add up because we don't quite know the full story because, as we know, the English voice at this time was so highly prevalent and so highly listened to that we kind of miss out on some of the, you know, stories from the other side of history. And there's actually a really some really good books about the true story of Pocahontas out there. Um, There's really great resources on the Smithsonian and like history.channel.com that do go into very detailed descriptions of Pocahontas' life. This is just a brief overview as to how it relates to Jamestown. So don't think that I'm not doing this justice on accident. I'm doing, I'm not doing it justice on purpose because there's just so much information that in order to do her story justice it would take two episodes probably and I really didn't even expect to get into Pocahontas on this episode but here we are. Now it's thought that Pocahontas was married to another in her tribe around 1610 and she managed to avoid the English until 1613 when she was actually lured onto an English ship of Captain Samuel Argall and kidnapped during the first angle, 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 oh my gosh, I'm going to butcher this name too, Anglo-Powahattan War. There we go. See, I said I was bad at words. It was said that she would not be released until Powahattan released the English prisoners, returned stolen weapons, and sent colonists food. So they're demanding so much. He actually only sent half the ransom, and that left her imprisoned. So, who's I don't really know who's to blame here. Well, probably them because she kidnapped. She was kidnapped, but I don't know. I feel like half the ransom. Like, come on, dude, it's your kid. But you know, it's a war. Who knows? During her captivity, she was under the care of a minister, where she was actually forced to learn Christianity and the English culture, 
and eventually she was converted and baptized to Christianity and was given the name Rebecca. So they're kind of whitewashing her history here and they're really trying to change her because they know that she's no longer useful for leverage. So they don't want to kill her because I think they would assume that that would end badly for the war. But they can't give her back and they don't really want her back because they've already paid half the ransom. And I assume that it's just a really political strategic move for them right now to convert her rather than to kill her. So again, they're kind of whitewashing her. They're making her her white. And this is where the problems really start to occur in Pocahontas's story. Now, during captivity, she eventually met a tobacco harvester um, who was also a widower, and his name was John Rolfe. And the two of them did choose to get married, both, I believe, consensually, but again, how are we to know exactly? Um, I read on a few places that it was for love and also political reasons, but I have a feeling that it was probably primarily political for their union. Because then they set sail to England where they then attended balls and they were presented to monarchs and I'm sure that it was just super riveting. But eventually they wanted to return to America. But on the returning trip, Pocahontas became very ill and died, possibly of smallpox or dysentery, before even making it out of the port. So that's really unfortunate. Um, But her short and yet virtually unknown life has become quite the myth and the legend, literally. And there is much that's questioned about Pocahontas. But one thing that we know is that she was a strong and courageous woman who withstood these horrible conditions imprisoned by the Jamestown colonists. She was probably raped on more than one occasion by more than one colonist. It's said that her depression just lingered. She had a son out of wedlock before her political marriage and, of course, this early demise in England But despite her grim life, she is remembered as a strong and survivalist woman, which is just, you know, really amazing that through all of this, we can prevail and showcase her as this strong woman who kind of adapted to survive. But it's really unfortunate that she had to. It's unfortunate she had to endure that. And it's unfortunate that we've whitewashed her in history, essentially, because she was not Christian and she was not named Rebecca there's a whole other story to her and there's just so much more there so I encourage you to go research this a little more because it's it's just so interesting now after Pocahontas and the war against her father the Powhatan people continued to mount a resistance and the colony only grew stronger with this and eventually a quote-unquote peace treaty was signed that seceded most of the Powhatans and forced them to pay an annual tribute to the colonial governor. So this is really the first time that we see, you know, us using the Native Americans and making them pay rent on land that they already own. So this is kind of the beginning of us really taking advantage of these this group of people and kind of pushing them out. Now we're going to fast forward a few years to 1676, 
there were economic problems and once again unrest with Native Americans, and this drove the Virginians, who were now led by Nathaniel Bacon, to rise up against Governor William Berkeley. They were enraged at quite a bit of things, one being the declining tobacco prices. They couldn't sell their tobacco any higher, but the taxes were raising, and they also wanted to obtain more land. And so they had a big rebellion, and this is seen as the first rebellion in American colonies. By 1698, the Central House was burned down, and the Middle Plantation, now known as Williamsburg, replaced it as the colonial capital. And while settlers continued to live and maintain their farms there, Jamestown was essentially over. It was all but abandoned. The islands housed military posts later in the Revolutionary and the Civil War, and then in the 20th century, the National Park Service declared it a national historic park called Historic Jamestown. And then, of course, we get in 1994, we have the Jamestown rediscovery, and that's continuing even today. We love to glorify history to change it, erase it, alter it, to make it seem like, oh, it wasn't so bad. We like to sweep things under the rug and pretend that things played out just a bit differently. And in the early times of colonial America, I think it's easy to do this because we weren't there to see it. I think it's easy to, you know, listen to your history teacher and think that Christopher Columbus did truly, quote, find America or that Roanoke was perhaps abducted by aliens, or maybe that Pocahontas was a princess who fell in love with a colonist and they lived a happy long life singing colors of the wind to the little raccoons in the forest. But I think we also need to know better. We need to start recognizing that we're painting false glorified images of the past and we're not really learning the truth. And of course we still do it. Let's think about Thanksgiving for a second, okay? Even though our holiday today revolves around turkeys and giving thanks and, of course, the yams with the little marshmallows on top, the first Thanksgiving, which was nearly 400 years ago this year, was actually quite bloody and grisly. And though peace was made, in fact, for a, a little while with the pilgrims and Native Americans, it didn't end with them all sitting together singing kumbaya around a table with a turkey. That's not really how it went, despite how your high school play for Thanksgiving might portray it. The peace was made for a while, yes, in exchange for agricultural help and a fortified front from other native enemy tribes, but it didn't last forever. The true story of Thanksgiving is definitely a story for another time because we're running out of time right now. But it shouldn't come to a shock to you that yet another story from our country's roots is simply not what it seems to be. And with that being said, I hope that you spend some time this Thanksgiving maybe researching the truth about Thanksgiving, the history of it, getting to know what you're really celebrating, and maybe separate the past a little bit and don't think of our Thanksgiving now as a celebration of what happened in the 1600s, but a time that you get to spend with family, be thankful for the things that you have, and of course, 
eat those damn yams. Until next time, my name is Elizabeth Wires, and this is Oddballers. Oddballers is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Elizabeth Wires. This podcast will dive deep into popular culture and media to explore the weird truth behind any and all topics, odd and interesting, and try and understand why humans are so fascinated with the biggest trends, tales, and oddities of the world. Join me for a new topic every month to learn a little something odd about the world that we inhabit. This is Oddballers.